Hello ladies and gentlemen, this is Dan Trotter, Pretty Good Bible Studies. In this audio, I'm going to cover 1 Peter 4, verses 12 through 19 to the end of the chapter. Our context is, well, the name of this section is, I'm going to call, Suffering as a Christian. The context is 1 Peter 4, 1 through 11, the previous part of chapter 4, where Peter talks about suffering in the flesh. And then at the end of 1 Peter 3b, Peter talked about suffering for righteousness' sake. And then at the first part of 1 Peter 3, he also talked about Jesus suffering for righteousness' sake. So you see that Peter has suffering on the mind here. That's a, a strong theme in 1 Peter. And I should mention also hope is too. 1 Peter 4, 12 and 13 will start. Dear friends, don't be surprised when the fiery ordeal comes among you to test you as if something unusual were happening to you. Instead, rejoice as you share in the sufferings of the Messiah, so that you may also rejoice with great joy at the revelation of his glory. Now what is this fiery ordeal that's coming among the Christians to test them? Remember, Peter is writing to Jewish people in in the diaspora, more particularly in the diaspora in Anatolia, present-day Turkey. And John Gill suggests that maybe the fiery ordeal that's coming upon them is the destruction of Jerusalem in AD 70, but the problem with that is, is how are the Jews in up in Anatolia, how are they going to feel the the heat, if you will, of the fires of Jerusalem in AD 70, they weren't there to feel it. And Adam Clark believes that this is the fiery ordeal that Peter's talking about. He says, well, they, these Jews might be in other countries, but they're going to still be affected by AD 70. It's going to be an ordeal for them to have their mother city burnt down. Maybe. I tend to, I'm an Orthodox preterist. I don't have any problems with somebody believing that, of course. But it just seems to me that the fiery ordeal is a little bit more direct than that. The ordeal that these Jews and the diaspora would feel would be somewhat indirect when Jerusalem is burned down in AD 70. Well, if it's not, the fiery ordeal is not the destruction of Jerusalem in AD 70, what is it? John Gill suggests perhaps it's daily persecutions that the Christians were suffering, and I think that's what it is. Just talking about the fiery ordeal that comes upon each one of you individually when you get persecuted, which was happening a good bit there in the 60s AD. Peter says, rejoice as you share in the sufferings of the Messiah. And that, of course, is counterintuitive because most of us, when we suffer, we don't feel like rejoicing. Peter's also said this in chapter 1, verses 6 and 7. You rejoice in this, though now for a short time you have had to struggle in various trials, so that the genuineness of your faith, more valuable than gold, which perishes though refined by fire, may result in praise, glory, and honor at the revelation of Jesus Christ. And I think the rejoicing is not directly because of the suffering, but it's because of the results the the suffering brings. Praise, glory, honor, the revelation of Jesus Christ. Same idea here. You suffer and then you rejoice with great joy at the revelation of his glory. Of course, we'll talk about what is that revelation of glory in just a minute. But the point is, is that we rejoice not in the sufferings per se, but we rejoice in the good things that the sufferings produce. We, I remember reading uh, Lee Strobel's Case for Christ in one of his books, and the question that the skeptic was asking, well, how can suffering be good? And he gave testimony after testimony of people who suffered and got closer and closer to Jesus. I mean, you know, if you don't get close to Jesus when you're suffering, what's your option? Get close to the world? That's really going to help you. The world doesn't care about you. Jesus does. Now, it's ironic that Peter talks so much about sufferings in the, here and in the rest of the book of First Peter because he directly told Jesus not to suffer when Jesus told him he was going to suffer. This is the famous confrontation with Jesus, the rebuke of Jesus at Caesarea Philippi during Jesus' earthly ministry. We 
read this in Matthew 16, verses 21, 22, and 23. From then on, Jesus began to point out to his disciples that he must go to Jerusalem and suffer. Suffer many things from the elders, chief priests, and scribes. Be killed and raised the third day. Killed. Then Peter took him aside and began to rebuke him. Oh, no, Lord, this will never happen to you. But he turned and told Peter, get behind me, Satan. You are an offense to me because you're not thinking about God's concerns, but man's. And so Peter was rebuked about telling Jesus not to suffer. And so I'm sure that might have affected him deeply. That was a pretty severe getting called the devil by the Son of God. That's, a, that's an experience that not many of us have. And it all happened because Peter refused to accept suffering in the life of his Messiah. Well, since then, he saw Jesus suffer. He saw him risen from the dead, and he knew that there has to be suffering before there is glory. Suffering and glory, suffering and glory. It's a great Bible study. Find all the verses that connect those two ideas. Suffering and glory, suffering and glory. It's everywhere in the Scriptures. Now, when is the revelation of his glory, at which time we will rejoice with great joy? Well, there's two options. It could be the last day at the end of the world. The problem with that is, is how could Peter's addressees rejoice at something that won't happen for 2,000 plus years and still counting? I don't think so. I think it's when glory is revealed to that individual sufferer that we just talked about. The fiery ordeal comes upon someone suffering persecution and then glory is revealed to him. So the idea here is you suffer. If you hold on, if you hold on, you will see the glory of Jesus. He will reveal his glory to you. And that's why so many Christians, when they suffer, that's why they're so strong Christians when it comes out afterwards, because they've seen Jesus, and they know he's real. We go now to verses 14, 15, and 16, 1 Peter 4. If you are ridiculed for the name of Christ, you are blessed, because the spirit of glory and of God rests on you. None of you, however, should suffer as a murderer, a thief, an evildoer, or a meddler. But if anyone suffers as a Christian, he should not be ashamed, but should glorify God in having that name. The Holman Christian Study Bible here puts Christian in quotes. In other words, if anyone suffers as having the name of Christian, he should not be ashamed. Now, the early Christians were, of course, ridiculed for the name of Christ a lot. They were a persecuted minority, and they were very small at first. And now a lot of times, as time has gone on, for example, in the Bible Belt South, where I grew up, everybody's a Christian. You know, Nobody's going to ridicule you for going to church. That was considered a good thing. Of course, that's not true now in post-Christian Antichrist America, but it was back when I was growing up. So... Things are different. Things have changed. But back then, people got ridiculed for the name of Christ all the time. Now, I've got seven scriptures showing how the world ridicules Christians. I've dedicated them to Joel Osteen, the name it and claim it, blab it and grab it, confess it and possess it, mark it and paul it, call it and haul it, scream it and redeem it, scream it and redeem it, hyperfaith heretic who has the biggest church in America, telling everybody how, oh, it's going to be so wonderful. Believe in Jesus, you're going to be rich. John fifteen eighteen through 20. If the world hates you, understand that it hated me before it hated you. If you were of the world, the world would love you as its own, however, because you are not of the world, but I have chosen you out of it. The world hates you. So there, bottom line, the world's going to hate you if you name the name of Christ. Remember the word I spoke to you, a slave is not greater than his master. If they persecuted me, they will also persecute you. Well, they did persecute Jesus, so that means they persecuted the head, they're going to persecute the body. Acts 5.41, then they went out from the presence of the Sanhedrin, rejoicing that they were counted worthy to be dishonored on behalf of the name. That's when Peter and John were arrested for preaching Jesus by the big shots in Israel. They were dishonored. Well, they threw them in jail as if they were common criminals. But they rejoiced, like Peter said, they rejoiced when that happened. This is the same Peter, of course, that, that is telling the, his, his readers here to rejoice when they're persecuted. He wasn't telling them 
some academic truth. He had been through it. He had rejoiced when he had been persecuted. And, of course, he was rejoicing because the good word of the gospel was getting out. People were believing. Acts 14.22, strengthening the disciples by encouraging them to continue in the faith and by telling them it is necessary to pass through many troubles on our way into the kingdom of God. Many troubles, Joel. Romans 8.17, and if children also heirs, heirs of God and co-heirs with Christ, seeing that we suffer with him so that we also may be glorified with him. These are verses I'd never heard when I was in the early charismatic movement, which was so influenced by the hyperfaith heretics. Never heard these verses. Now, of course, I did hear. Uh, let me say here, there is a balance here. I mean, I remember one time I had a charismatic friend who said that who noticed all the errors of the faith message. And he said, and he was taking heat for it. And he said, well, I'm in the doubt and unbelief camp. Well, is that the options we have? Joel Osteen on one hand and doubt and unbelief, sickness and poverty on the other? Of course not. This is this suffering is not guaranteed. Some Christians are not going to suffer. And Jesus delivers from our suffer, suffering. For a short time, he says, it is necessary that we pass through many troubles on our way into the kingdom of God. On our way into the kingdom of God, good things are going to happen. The glory of Christ is going to be revealed to you. Second Corinthians 1, 5, For as the sufferings of Christ overflow to us, so through Christ our comfort also overflows. So there's comfort in sufferings. There's glory of Christ revealed to you in sufferings. There's reward in heaven, as Jesus said in the Sermon on the Mount, which I've already mentioned, I think. Well, no, I didn't. But he said, Great is your, blessed are you. Here it is right here. You are blessed when they insult and persecute you and falsely say every kind of evil against you because of me. Be glad and rejoice because your reward is great in heaven. So, yeah, a lot of good things come out of suffering, but it doesn't mean we don't suffer. On the, the other extreme is all you talk about is suffering, 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 and you never tell Christians about the hope and the glory that's to be revealed and the reward that's in heaven. Well, you ain't nothing but a killjoy and a pain in the rear. And I'm sure a lot of charismatics, or at least the hyper-faith charismatics, are reacting against that kind of stuff. And believe me, it's out there because I've heard it. We need to walk between the scylla of hyper-faith and the charybdis of doom and gloom. Peter says in 1 Peter 4.14, 4, you are blessed if you're ridiculed because for the name of Christ. You're blessed. Now, I don't think that Peter is talking about the actual ridiculing. I don't think that's a blessing. I mean, who likes to be ridiculed? That goes against common human emotions. I think he's talking about the results that come from the ridiculed. For example, in the Sermon on the Mount, Jesus said, your reward will be great in heaven. You're blessed that way. You're blessed when the glory of Christ is revealed to you. You're blessed. What is it? Suffering produces patience, and patience produces proven character and all those good things. I can't remember where that scripture is right off the top of my head, but all of these good things come from suffering. That's how you're blessed. Not by the, But you're not really blessed for the suffering itself. Suffer, the persecution that's coming upon you is evil. It's from the devil. God allows it, and he will test you with it. But it's just like sickness is evil. Yeah, you can learn from sickness, but don't tell me it's not evil. You can learn from all kinds of evil things, but don't tell me it's not evil. It is evil. The blessing comes when you persevere and conquer the evil. Now, Peter says, look, when you're suffering, don't suffer as a murderer, a thief, an evildoer, or a meddler. It's interesting that he would put a meddler or a busybody right there in the same list as a murderer, a thief, and an evildoer, which means he must think that meddling is a very serious sin. Now, to me, it's not as serious a sin as murder, but it's included in the list. It, was, it stood out to me so much, I looked up a bunch of English translations to see whether this was an off-the-wall translation by the Holman Christian Study Bible. It's not. Meddler is used everywhere, or it's equivalent, busybody, meddler, something like that. 
And so what this tells us is, is that mind your own business. Now, what does that mean? Do we not bear each other's burdens? No, Paul tells us in Galatians 6 to mind, to bear each other's burdens. But there is enough pain and dysfunction and sin and unrighteousness in the world. You can't straighten it all up. And you start meddling in somebody else's business trying to straighten up their mess. What's that proverb that says anybody that gets involved in somebody else's fight is like somebody that picks up a dog by his two ears. The dog doesn't like it. He's going to turn around and scratch and bite the fire out of you. And likewise, you get involved in some stuff that's not none of your business. You better make sure, as Jesus is telling you to get involved, or you likely to get bit. I had a situation one time I was invited to come get involved in a church controversy. Now, I knew, but not well, I knew some of the people involved in the church controversy. I was not aware of the church. I was not even aware of the city where the church was located. And this brother came to me and said, please come down here and help straighten it out. And I said, uh, no, that's not my business. And for my reward, I got an email from him. He called me a coward. <laughs> well, I might be a coward, but I'm a smart coward. I'm a scriptural coward because Peter here says, don't meddle in things that are not your business. Verse 16, Peter says, but if anyone suffers as a Christian, he should not be ashamed. This is very similar to what Peter said in First. Peter 3, the previous chapter, verse 14. But even if you should suffer for righteousness, that's the same thing as saying suffer for the name of Christian, suffer because of the name you bear, which is Christian. But even if you should suffer for righteousness, you are blessed. Do not fear what they fear or be disturbed. Don't be fear of the punishment that pagans are going to get. You're not going to get punished for that. You're going to be blessed for that. We go to 1 Peter 4, verse 17. For the time has come for judgment to begin with God's household. And if it begins with us, what will be the outcome for those who disobey the gospel of God? Now, the question is, is who is God's household that's going to have the beginning of God's judgment? Well, two options. Gill suggests the temple in Jerusalem, which was destroyed in AD 70. In that case, Peter is saying that judgment begins with us. The us would mean us Jews, because Peter was Jewish. There's a problem with that, though. There's no distinction between us Jews who are going to receive judgment in God's household and the outcome which assumely assume us the outcome which we can assume will be much greater for those who disobey the gospel of God. Well, the people that were running God's household, the temple of God, they were the ones who killed Jesus, murdered the prophets. And they had received horrible judgment. Where's the distinction between that horrible judgment and the outcome for the rest of the people in the world who disobey the gospel of God? I can't see any distinction at all. But Peter clearly implies that there is a distinction. So we're not going to take the household of God as the, as the Jewish temple. We're going to take it as the church, which I think most people do. So when Peter says the judgment of God's, the judgment on God's household begins with us, the us then would refer to us Christians, because Peter was a Christian as well as a Jew. Now, the next question we have is, why would Peter write this? Why would God want to judge his suffering, persecuted flock? Well, the answer, according to the NIV Study Bible and John Gill, is this judgment is not eternal judgment. It's not sending people to hell. It's chastisement for the Christian's purity, as the NIV Study Bible and John Gill say. So judgment on God's whole household starts with us as he purifies us as we go through. And I'm sure he's talking about the suffering that the church had to go through. And the purpose of that testing and that suffering was to purify the church. What would be the outcome for those who disobey the gospel of God? They're going to get destroyed in 87 and they're going to get wiped out. That's what's going to happen to them. So now this suffering or this judgment on the household of God, if you will, this suffering, Jesus had predicted that before the destruction of the temple in 870. Jesus had predicted that before the destruction of the temple in 870, Christians would be persecuted. 
For example, in Matthew 24, 9, Then they will hand you over for persecution, and they will kill you. You will be hated by all nations because of my name. Matthew 24, 21 through 22. For at that time there will be great tribulation, the kind that hasn't taken place from the beginning of the world until now and never will again. Unless those days were limited, no one would survive. But those days will be limited because of the elect. The, these two verses come from the Olivet Discourse, and if you take an Orthodox Protestant view of the Olivet Discourse, which I hope you do, then you will see Jesus predicting the very persecution that Peter's talking about here. Mark 13, 12-13, this is also the Olivet Discourse, Mark's version, Then brother will betray brother to death, and a father his child. Children will rise up against parents and put them to death, and you will be hated by everyone because of my name. But the one who endures to the end will be delivered. So you see, things were going to be bad. Judgment on the God's household, he's probably referring to persecution from non-believing Jews. John 16, 2 says this, Jesus says this, They will ban you from the synagogues. In fact, a time is coming when anyone who killed you will think he is offering service to God, like Paul did when he went around arresting Christians and putting them over to the court so that they could be judicially sentenced to death. Paul thought he was serving God. So that kind of fleshes out a little bit, this judgment on the household, on God's household. Now, as a general application, this shows that God does care about the purity of his church, and he will judge it when necessary. I don't know when that's coming in America, but it sure needs to, because the church in America is so compromised with the world, it's embarrassing. I saw on a YouTube video, a Netflix video, done by Reformed Christians. It generally was a pretty good video, except for a couple of typically ignorant, anti-charismatic things that they say. But it was a pretty good video denouncing the hyper-faith, word-of-faith movement. And in the video, they said that this movement had now become the face of American Christianity. And I thought, my gosh, when I first heard of these people, they were on the fringe of the charismatic movement back in the late 60s and early 70s. You had full gospel businessmen. You had Dennis Bennett, the Episcopal. You had a bunch of mainstream preachers involved in their denominations who were just preaching one thing, charismatic stuff. But they weren't preaching all this other Christian, Christian science stuff. E.W. Kenyon, Phineas Quinby, New Thought, name it and claim it stuff. They weren't teaching that stuff. Uh, but Hagen Copelnism was there. It was on the fringes, and it started moving in and moving in. Pretty soon it became the face of the charismatic movement. That's when I got out. And now it's spread, not, and it's not only the face of the charismatic movement, it's the face of the whole American church, according to these Reformed brethren who put out this video. I hope they're wrong, but if it's true... Judgment needs to begin with God's household. Now, when Peter says that judgment begins with the household of God, he has in mind Ezekiel, Ezekiel 9, 6, which says this, Slaughter the old men, the young men and women, as well as the old women and little children, but do not come near anyone who has the mark. A little context here, Ezekiel is prophesying of the judgment. He's, he's an, an exilic prophet. prophet. He's in Babylon. He's been taken off, and he's preparing the people for the destruction of Israel, Jerusalem in 586 B.C., and so in his vision he has women and little children are going to be killed, old men are going to be killed, everybody's going to be killed, which is what happened in 586 B.C., but then he says, do not come near anyone who has the mark, and that John in Revelation, of course, talks about the mark of the Christian, 144,000 mark, the mark means they're sealed against destruction. Now begin in my sanctuary, Ezekiel says, so judgment is coming on the household of God, which back then was Jerusalem, and the judgment began at the sanctuary, not at the walls, not at the pool of Siloam, not at the sheep gate, but at the temple, at the sanctuary. So they began, these these judging angels, 
began with the elders who were in front of the temple. The judgment began at the household of God in Ezekiel. Peter asked, what will be the outcome for those who disobey the gospel of God? I can assure you it won't be good. The godly have chastening. The ungodly have judgments which destroy them, as Jameson Fawcett and Brown say. Now, those who disobey the gospel of God, that would refer to anybody, Gentile or Jew. But Adam Clark points out this is referring mostly to unbelieving Jews because of who Peter wrote the gospel, wrote his letter to, to the Jews in the Anatolian diaspora. We go to verse 18, 1 Peter 4. And if a righteous person is saved with difficulty, what will become of the ungodly and the sinner? This verse reminds us of Proverbs 11:31. If the righteous will be repaid on earth, how much more the wicked and sinful? In other words, the righteous suffer as they are chastened on earth, but ooh, compare that to the wicked and the sinful, what they're going to experience. Now, what is Peter referring to when he says if a righteous person is saved with difficulty? I'm assuming it's he's referring to the ordinary persecutions of the Jewish believers that Jesus predicted in the Olivet Discourse, the great apostasy there, the great tribulation. And, of course, the Christians were saved from that. But it was difficult. Now, when you say saved with difficulty, it doesn't mean it's difficult for Jesus to save them. It means the salvation is accompanied with difficulty from the human point of view. So if a righteous person is saved with difficulty with having to go through a lot of trials, ooh, trials are bad. But, ooh, what about the punishment that's coming on the ungodly and the sinner? Now, Adam Clark says that Peter is referring specifically to the destruction of Jerusalem in AD 70. And I don't think, because of the other reasons I gave, that that Peter was referring to that. Maybe he was, I don't know, but I, I don't think so. But let's assume for the sake of argument, for the sake of Clark's argument that he was, the righteous person saved with difficulty could be referring to that famous instance in the Jewish War, 66 AD, when Cestius Gallus came against Jerusalem. Many Christians were shut up in it when he strangely raised the siege. The Christians immediately departed to Pell in Koile, Syria, which is basically right across the Jordan River there into the dominions of King Agrippa, who was an ally of the Romans, and there they were in safety. That's Agrippa II, by the way. And it appears from the ecclesiastical historians that they had but barely time to leave the city before the Romans returned under the command of Titus and never left the place till they had destroyed the temple. The siege returned, in other words, raised the city to the ground, slain upwards of a million of those wretched people, and put an end to their civil polity and ecclesiastical state. Now, this famous incident with Cestius Gallus, that's what Jesus said when you see the abomination which causes the desolation surrounded the city, flee from the city. And that's what the Christians did because Jesus had warned them in advance in the Olivet Discourse. Now, that was a close shave, folks. The reason was is because they were in the city. They were bottled up in Jerusalem. They couldn't leave because the zealots were in control. And the zealots thought the Messiah was going to come deliver them. And they weren't going to let anybody defect and go over to the Romans for safety and salvation. So they kept them bottled up in the city. And so they couldn't flee because of the zealots. And even if they did flee, they would immediately be confronted by that encircling wall of Roman soldiers. But then when Cestius Gallus pulled out, and to this day his sterns don't know why he did it, he leaves the zealots chase Cestius Gallus all the way to Beth Horon in the north. They have a big battle. The zealots actually win. The Romans lost. While that battle's going on, the Christians hightailed it out of Dodge, left Jerusalem, and went to Pella. So that was pretty difficult to get saved that way. So that's an interesting idea. Clark could be right, but I just... I think he's talking about persecution in general. Peter is not. He's not really talking about that particular difficulty of when Rome was burnt down, when when Jerusalem was burnt down in eighty seventy. Or his main point, of course, here is: hey, if trials and tribulations for the believer are difficult, ooh, the ungodly and sinner, it's worse for them. So next time something bad happens to you, just remember you got Jesus. The ungodly and sinner, they suffer 
unpleasant things too, but they don't have Jesus. What a mess it is for their life. Verse 19, 1 Peter 4, we'll finish it up. So those who suffer according to God's will should, while doing what is good, entrust themselves to a faithful creator. Now, Peter says, so those who suffer, he didn't say for all who suffer. This shows that it's not necessarily God's will for a given Christian to suffer. You don't know, that's up to God. It's all left up to God's will. You shouldn't say it's absolutely required by God that you should suffer for his will. I can't make I can't make a statement to that effect scripturally. I might find some scripture later that will allow me to make it, but I don't see it. It's usually if you are being suffer, persecuted. It's all left up to God's will. However, I will say this. If you look at the life of any Christian, sooner or later you're going to see suffering because that's the fate of mankind on this world. I remember Tennessee Williams, who lived a horrible life. He was a homosexual, and he had great theatrical success as a playwright, and then he was spurned by the New York critics, and he was miserable, and he spent the rest of his life trying to get, get his mojo back. And he said one time that you better get used to so You better know what suffering is because you are going to experience a lot of it in this life. And that hit me when I read that because I didn't know anything about Tennessee Williams at the time. It was only later that I saw a bio, biography about his life. And he's not a Christian, and he suffered terribly. And he was saying that everybody suffers. Man, basically he's right. So even though I can't prove that the Scripture says everybody will suffer according to God's will, factually or evidentially, I guess I should say, you look around, boy, I tell you, this is a hard life. And I, I've told a bunch of young Chinese Christians, some of whom I've led to the Lord themselves, I'm gonna, I say, I'm going to tell you something. So-and-so, this life is hard, and you're going to suffer. I don't mind telling them that. I said, don't, you're going to have the power of Jesus with you in that suffering, but don't think that life's going to be a bowl of cherries. I never heard Joel Osteen say that. Gee, I wonder why. Some are going to suffer according to God's will. That means that God has either initiated the suffering or allowed the suffering. If we just say people are suffering according to Satan's will, then it would not be good for Christians to suffer. But God takes that which is evil, turns it to good, as I've already said, you see the glory of Christ, you get a great reward in heaven. It produces long-suffering endurance, proven character, and all that. You know, suffering has a good result. So if it is your time to suffer, you should do what's good. Don't go around suffering. Don't get thrown in jail because you robbed a bank, of course. Suffer for being a Christian, not for being a lawbreaker. Don't revile back. Doing that which is good is um, don't revile back at those who are persecuting you and making your life miserable, your boss or whoever it is your unsaved, nasty husband, and trust yourself to a faithful creator. It takes a lot of trust to go through suffering and say, God, I know you're going to work this out. I've watched a lot of wife abuse movies, and I think, I think, frankly, men who abuse their wives deserve the death penalty. I make no bones about that. I, it's just terrible. I watched The Burning Bed with Farrah Fawcett Majors burn up her husband, and I was cheering it. I, I think there's no excuse for men beating up on their wives. But every now and then, some of these wives, in order to show how strong they are, they start talking back to the abusive husband, all it does is arouses their anger and worse, and they get and the wives get beat even worse. No, don't revile your boss when they're mistreating you. Don't do that. Entrust yourself to God to deliver you from the trial. Ladies and gentlemen, we're now finished with First Peter four, and we are now prepared in our next audio to take up First Peter five, one through fourteen in which Peter will give some practical advice about shepherding the flock of God. I hope you stay tuned for that audio, and I hope you enjoyed this one.